Our scripture reading for today comes from Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 23 to 38. Here now the reading of God's word. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semien, the son of Joseph, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shilatiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Qasim, the son of Almadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malia, the son of Mena, the son of Maratha the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sareg, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shalah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arifax, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. You don't know how many times I have practiced. <laughs> Bow your heads with me and let's pray. Father, we ask that your grace would be among us now as we begin this season of Advent, as we worship in commemoration of what you have done by sending your beloved son, our great, our great king, our great savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would minister to us as we begin this season. Lord, in a time where we are just so forgetful and so frustrated because of the circumstances that we are in, circumstances that we have been so eager to be out of. And yet, Father, it's in the midst of such turmoil and trouble that you shine your brightest in terms of your faithfulness, in terms of your power, in terms of your grace and mercy. And so, God, we come to you asking once again that you would renew our faith, that you would refresh our souls, and that you would remind us of the great hope that we have through your son, Jesus. For we pray all these things in his name. Amen and amen. You know, these past two years have undoubtedly been some of the most inconvenient, some of the most troublesome, and maybe for some of us, some of the most miserable two years of our life. And yet, even with that said, I think you would still have to agree with me that you and I are still living in the best of times. Yeah. And the reason why I would say that is for one particular reason, and that is the reason of choices. Choices. You and I are given certain opportunities, certain privileges, certain uh, possibilities to make choices that previous generation could only dream of having. For example, we have the choice of the kind of job that we're going to do. We have the choice of the kinds of food we want to eat. We have the choice of who we get to marry. But did you know that throughout most of human history, and even in certain parts of the world today, that most people could not choose the kind of jobs that they would do or foods that they could eat. They couldn't even decide who they could even marry. 
So yes, indeed, when you consider the choices that are available to us, you and I are incredibly privileged. We are incredibly blessed. We are incredibly bettered because of the choices that you and I have in our lives, choices that we sometimes take for granted. And yet here's also the truth of the matter. With all that said, however, there are certain things in life that we are powerless in choosing, right? To where if we had the power to choose, would make our lives even more better, even more blessed. And one particular example that I'm thinking of is our dads, our dads, our fathers. You know, no matter who you are, no matter what you're capable of, no matter what you achieve, no one in here can choose who their fathers are. And yet sometimes we wish we could, right? Because whether you'd want to admit it, whether you'd want to confess, we all have circumstances, situations in our lives where our lives have been so frustratingly difficult, so turbulent, so troublesome because of fathers, right? Whether it be due to their poor decisions, whether it be due to their poor character, or even due to poor health that has burdened us in ways that we felt unfairly burdened with, right? And if you're one of the few who've been incredibly blessed with an amazing father, praise God for that, thank God, you still have to admit that there's probably a father or two in your family history that has caused so much havoc and trouble that you are still suffering for, even without your awareness. And so with that stage set, I introduce to you our Advent or Christmas sermon series, The Fathers of Jesus. Now you hear that title, and you might be a little confused. How could Jesus or anyone else have any more than one father, right? Fathers of Jesus. But here you need to understand the culture of the Bible. You see, back during this time, any male person that made up your ancestry, that made up your earthly lineage, could be called your father. Your great-grandfather could be called your uncle. Your second uncle, once removed, could be considered your father. In the days of the ancient world, a father could be anyone who made up your family tree that was a male. And so, just like you and me, when Jesus was born, Born into this world, into an, earthly fa- into an earthly family, he had many earthly fathers. But unlike you and me, Jesus could actually choose who these earthly fathers were because unlike you and me, Jesus actually existed before he was born on this earth because Jesus is God. He is God the Son, and with all that sovereignty and all that power, he could choose with intentionality what earthly family he would be born into and hence who his earthly fathers would be. And in this series, we're going to consider some key fathers that make up the lineage of Jesus Christ so that by considering who they were and what God did in their lives, we would come to a better understanding of Christmas. This is bothering me. And why we should appreciate it more and more throughout our lives. And today we begin the series by looking at the very last name that Luke mentions in the genealogy of Jesus, a man by the name of Adam. And so with that in mind, there are going to be three things that we're going to consider in today's message. First, we're going to talk about who Adam was. Then we're going to talk about why Adam matters to us. And finally, we're going to end it with how Adam can encourage us. Who Adam was, why he matters to us, and how he can encourage us. Let's begin with the first point, who Adam was. Now, for those of you who grew up going to a church, attending Sunday school, no doubt the name Adam will be very familiar to you. He's easily one of the who's who's of the Bible. Easily top ten, maybe even top five most famous people in the scriptures. But just in case you have forgotten what you learned in Sunday school, or if this is your first time attending a church, welcome, by the way, let me read to you as to how the Bible first introduces Adam 
to us. This is Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4, we read, When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth, for the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth, and there were no people to cultivate the soil. Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered all the land. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Come on back. You see that reference of a man in verse 7? In the original Hebrew, it's the word Adam. Adam, yeah. That's where Adam gets his name. His name literally means the man. And that's not referring to him being like the governing powers who, who overrule with, with structural oppression. No, it's referring to the fact that he is the original man. He is the first ever human being, which means, which means... He is not only one of the earthly fathers of Jesus. No, he is the father of all mankind. Adam is the father of all human beings. Or if I could put it another way, every human being that has ever lived, every human being that will ever live is a direct descendant of Adam. Something that Paul echoes in Acts chapter 17 where he says this, From one man, Adam, he, God, created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determine their boundaries. Now, for those of you here investigating Christianity, what I just said to you may not be consistent to what you learned in your high school bio course or in your pre-med class at the university. Because in those settings, you were taught that we human beings are descendants of multiple hominid groups that merge together, whether you're talking about Homo erectus, Homo habilis, Neanderthal man, right? In other words, you were taught that human beings are the composite of multiple species and genuses and groups. We're not direct descendants of an individual person named Adam. After all, they say, the theory of evolution demands such a belief. Now, this is not the time to get into the nuances of evolutionary biology or anthropology, but I'd like to read to you a quote from a very profound Christian scientist who has studied these things extensively. And the reason why I quote him is not to convince you of what the Bible says, but at least to cause you to question the certainty that you have from your education as gospel truth, no pun intended. This is Dr. Arthur Custance who says this, quote, Circular reasoning plays a large part in evolutionary anthropology. Although it is not as readily admitted, the circularity of the reasoning goes something like this. We know that human evolution is true, and therefore there must be a succession of forms from some proto-human being up to man spread over an appropriate time scale of millions of years. Since by disregarding geographical location and taking some liberties with an expansive time scale, one can line up a set of candidates in fossil form which make what is euphemistically term a nice sequence this proves that human evolution is quote a fact therefore the possibility that there might be another explanation for similarity of form is not even considered but the point is that the mere arbitrary lining up of man-like fossils even when the temporal ordering is correct does not prove descent the assumption is made that descent is the explanation and the lineup is then used to prove the assumption this is as characteristically circular as much geological reasoning end quote you got that? <laughs> I read it five times and I was still like, what? So let me just quickly tell you what he says. He's basically saying that it takes as much faith to believe what you were taught in Bio 101 as to what you were taught in Bible 101. Okay? That's what he's saying. And to further this point, here's something else to consider. 
Given the fact that you guys are here, either in person or watching, tells me that you are open-minded to what the Bible says about God, right? Well, is it that much of a further stretch to be just as open-minded as to what the Bible says about Adam? I mean, I don't think it is. Think about it. If you're here because you're open-minded to the possibilities of what the Bible says about an all-knowing, all-powerful God who can do all things, why is it that much harder to be just as open-minded to what the Bible says about a man who, Scripture says, is the father of all mankind? It shouldn't be. And here's something else to consider. I'm about to show you that it's in this belief of Adam being the father of all mankind that actually helps us better deal with the life that we live in and the world that we are living upon than any other belief with regard to human origins. Let me explain what I mean by going to my next point, why Adam matters to us. Chances are, most of you in here, you don't know who your ancestors were. Unless you're one of those quirky folks who like to go on Ancestry.com and look up who your great-great-great-great-grandmother or great-great-grand-aunt was, chances are you have no idea who make up your ancestry. And quite frankly, you probably don't care. Because in your mind, you're thinking, okay, my ancestors, who were they? I don't know. And honestly, I don't care. Because who they were, how they lived their lives makes no practical difference to me. I imagine that's how most people think of their ancestry. And you may be, if you think that way, tempted to also feel that way about Adam. Because here I am telling you that he is all of our ancestors. He's the original ancestor. And your response could be, okay, that's nice. So what? Who cares? It makes no practical difference to me. Right? Wrong. Wrong. Because the Bible would tell us that Adam is unlike any of our other ancestors. Okay? There's something about Adam that makes him special, that makes him set apart, that makes him unique, that makes him unparalleled to who he was and how he lived his life, has profound personal impact on all of us, even till now. And to show you what that is, let me read to you Romans chapter 5, where starting in verse 12, we read, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Wow. According to the Bible, Adam brought sin into the world, and therefore with it, death. In other words, by making a very, very stupid choice, disobeying God, Adam single-handedly infected human nature with sin, and therefore he exposed the human race to death. Why do people have such disgusting and perverted thoughts? It's because of Adam. Why do people get sick and debilitated with disease like cancer? It's because of Adam. Why do people seemingly have this obsession of being so greedy and victimizing and exploiting people, some of whom love them dearly. It's because of Adam. If you've ever questioned why your life is so messed up, why your family is falling apart, why this city is collapsing, why society seems to be going crazy, Scripture will always spit back to you the same person, the same name. It is Adam. It's always Adam. Specifically, it's Adam's sin. Adam's sin is the cause, is the reason, is the origin of what makes all of our lives so broken and so miserable. This is why Adam matters to us. Because it correctly identifies for us who is truly responsible for all the despair, all the depression, all the hardships, all the heartache that we all have to go through. And this is something I feel we really need to grasp. Why? Because so often, so many people, when they try to identify and name the person responsible for all that is broken, they don't usually name Adam, right? They don't name Adam. They don't 
even name the devil, and they certainly never name themselves. You know who they typically name as for who is responsible for why the world is so messed up? It's God, right? And Christian, let's be honest. Let's be honest. In some of your most darkest moments, in some of your most depressing seasons, haven't you been tempted to wonder, if not even flat out accuse God, Lord, what are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? What have I done? For you to treat me this way. So often we identify, we name God as the one responsible for all the hardships and heartaches that we go through. I know I do. And it's in moments like that that we would be wise to remember the words of A.W. Tozer when he once said this regarding the goodness of God. He said this, quote, That God is good is taught or implied on every page of the Bible and must be received as an article of faith as impregnable as the throne of God. It is a foundation stone for all sound thought about God and is necessary to moral sanity. To allow that God could be other than good is to deny the validity of all thought and end in the negation of every moral judgment. If God is not good, then there can be no distinction between kindness and cruelty, to where heaven could be hell and hell could be heaven, end quote. What's he saying? He's saying once you deny that God is good, which is essentially what you're doing when you name him as the one responsible for all the problems of your life, then you lose the ability. You have no basis of calling anything objectively good or anything objectively evil, okay? If you break the lights in this room, and it's pitch black, you lose the ability to discern whether or not the person next to you is a friend or a foe. Am I right? So also, once you lose the concept, once you get rid of the belief that there is a good God, you have lost your ability to determine or to discern what is objectively good, what is objectively evil. You need the concept. You need the axiom. You need the foundational presupposition to say that there is a good God for you to even be able to be in a position to say, that is good, that is evil. You need a standard. And that standard is the truth that your God is a good God. And one of the most practical ways that you hold on to that thought is by properly identifying who truly is responsible for all the brokenness and hardships of life. And it isn't God. It's this guy, Adam. It's Adam. Now, at this point, as you hear this setup about who Adam was and the complications of his life that spilled over to us, I'm imagining that maybe you're building a a, a negative uh, energy towards him, right? Maybe anger, animosity, hostility, hatred, bitterness, kind of a, you know, this, this, this upsetting negative posture towards him. But you know, there's actually something very encouraging about Adam and the circumstances of his life that could be something that we should look to with sense of positivity. Yeah, there's something very positive. There's a silver lining about this idea of Adam being who he was and what he did to the human race. And to go into that, let me go to my final point, how Adam encourages us. You know, out of all the negative things that Scripture says about Adam, you come to an undeniable conclusion about him. And you know what that is? Adam is the greatest failure. He's not the greatest example of failure. No, he is the greatest failure of all. I mean, if you could define failure as a person, Adam would be that person. 
He is hands down the failure of all failures, the disappointment of all disappointments. He is the loser of all losers. He is. That's how scripture portrays him, which makes you wonder, why would God, the son, choose to come into the world, into an earthly family, knowing unavoidably that he would have to be a son of Adam, to where Adam would have to be one of his earthly fathers. Why would God do this, knowing that would be the consequence? Do you know why? It's the gospel. That's why. Because what is the gospel? The gospel, simply put, is God coming into the world so that he can negate, he could neutralize, he could nullify the failure of Adam. Let me say that again. The gospel message is God coming into the world as Jesus Christ so that he can negate, he can neutralize, he could nullify the failure of Adam. You see? Consider what it says in Romans 5, starting in verse 17. We read, For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who received it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because of one other person who obeyed God, many will be made righteous. What is it saying? It's saying that God came into the world as Jesus Christ so he could suffer the full penalty, pay the full punishment for all the sins of the world, including the sins of Adam. So that if you, if you put your faith in Jesus to where you turn away from your sin, You turn away from yourself as the Lord of your own life and make Jesus Christ your king, your savior. You can be spared from the consequences of Adam's failure. You will not suffer death. You will not suffer condemnation. You will not suffer the banishment of God's loving presence for eternity. Instead, you will have eternal life with him, right? That's what the gospel promises. Now, here's the encouraging part. If God is capable and willing of undermining Adam's failure, the greatest failure of all, don't you think he is able and he's willing to undermine whatever failure that you have done in your life? You know, so often I hear people say to me, oh, God can never forgive me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the people I hurt. You don't know the sufferings that they're going through because of me. God could not handle someone like me. But look at Adam, the greatest failure of all. And God is able to undermine. He's able to neutralize. He's able to get rid of the consequences of the greatest failure of all. Do you not think he could do the same for you? And don't you think he is willing to do the same for you? You know, I think this is something that we really need to hear, especially now during this holiday season. Because for many people during this time, maybe for some of you, This is not a time of festive joy. This is not a season of warm celebration. If anything, it's a time of depressive sullenness, a season of of, of cold isolation because of failure, probably your failure, where because of how you failed someone, right, you have empty chairs around your dinner table. You have an empty mailbox devoid of any cards, well, like giving you warm season greetings. You have an empty living room not filled with warm bodies of those who should be there. So often we are confronted with failure and we think that there's no hope for us, that we're doomed because of it. 
or maybe someone failed us and we think that that there's no reconciliation there's no hope there's no healing what do we do in situations like that when we're filled with such sorrow and sullenness because of failure whether it's your own or others you need to look to adam you need to look at the one who was one of the fathers of jesus and how god came into the world as a son of adam so that through him you could become a son and daughter of God. Listen, if Jesus is willing to fix Adam's failures, don't you think he can fix your failures or the failures of someone who failed you? If Jesus is willing to forgive Adam for his failures, don't you think he can forgive you of your failures? If Jesus is able to bring Adam into his family by being born in a manger in the city of Bethlehem, don't you think God can bring you into his family? by dying on the cross outside of the city of Jerusalem? The hope of Christmas is the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is that your failure or the failure of someone who's wounded you does not have to doom you. It does not have to leave you in despair. It does not have to leave you with any sense of hopelessness. That's why Jesus chose to come in to this world to where Adam would be one of his earthly fathers, to show you and me that hope is here. Reconciliation can happen. Healing is available. Restoration will be done. But here's the question. Do you believe that? And are you willing to claim it in faith because of this promise that God has given to you this Christmas season? My hope and prayer that whatever failure you're haunted by, either your own failure or someone that you love but right now can't stand, is that you would look to Adam and how his God, your God, restored him in the midst of his failure. That's the charge for us this season. My hope and prayer is that you never forget it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we think about this holiday season and how it does not seem cheery or bright or warm and full, God, I ask that you would just help us to remember that you have come to give us hope. You have come to show us that we are not doomed by failure, whether it be our own failure or the failure of those who we love. God, we know that this season can really highlight all that is wrong, all that is not right with our lives, with our families, with our friends, within our society. But God, I hope and pray that as we consider who this man, Adam, was and what you did for him, that it could finally shut the mouth of our great enemy who says that we are hopeless in our failures. God, we pray that you would give us the faith needed to go into this holiday season with much hope, with much faith, knowing that whatever isolation, whatever coldness, whatever sorrows and sufferings that we may be going through or our loved ones are going through because of failure, that in the end, in Christ, there is nothing but hope and renewal, restoration, and harmony. God, help us to believe these things. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. We're not